So this morning I, I wanted to just briefly have a recap of chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, and then we'll, we'll, we'll launch into this message. You know, as we uh, have been in this epistle for a while, we started this out as an astounding thing. If you look at chapter 1, the first four verses, that's an astounding way that John will open up his epistle describing whom the Christian life is all about. By whom this, this love flows through us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, he says that the life was manifested to us. We've not only seen this, we've bore witness to it, we've touched it, we've ate with it, we've, we've seen these miracles. You know, and we started out by saying, you know, uh, I would rather take evidence on somebody who has been there, somebody who has seen it, somebody who can't necessarily explain it. How do you explain watching the Lord Jesus Christ raise somebody from the dead, and yet they had it, it's irrefutable, they can't help it. Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's irrefutable. They experienced it. And he starts out that way. And then he ends in verse 4 of chapter 1 by saying, These things will write to you, why? That your joy might be full. And that's how it launches into this epistle. And then he also launches into the fact that about walking in the light, fellowshipping with him, he also launches in the fact in verse 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What happens to the believer when he sins? Are we thrown back in that same category we were at before Christ? Absolutely not. Christ is now our advocate verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. He's our attorney, so to speak. He's our defense. When the law would come in and say, I'm going to condemn you, Jesus stands there in our defense and saying, the condemnation fell upon me. The law no more has dominion over authority in one's life. The law now becomes, a, to a Christian, a understanding of how it might please the Father, the holiness of the Father. We know now that the Ten Commandments are given, and it's a righteous standard of God. How do we please God? Well, we can honor our father and mother. That pleases God. Jesus did that on the cross. Not to commit adultery pleases the Father. We know that because we love our brethren. Paul explains that in Romans 13. What is the fulfillment of the law? It's love. That's the fulfillment of the law. So if we start understanding that the law, we're not condemned by it anymore because Jesus Christ took the punishment, the condemnation for that, we can understand all sorts of admonitions in the epistles. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those of Christ Jesus. And so forth. We learn in verse 2 of chapter 2 that he's the propitiation. In other words, the satisfying sacrifice that pleased the Father on our behalf. God was so pleased with Christ, he raised him from the dead. How do I know Christ is pleased? And I'm accepted before him. I know that by one thing and one thing only. God raised his son from the dead. Not because I've done good works. Not because I've spent my whole life serving Christ. That's great from a heart of gratitude. That's wonderful and that's what we should do. But how do I know God is satisfied? How do I know that when I die 
if I should die right now of a, of a massive heart attack or a coronary, what have you, how do I know I could stand before my father and see him as my, as my loving father? And see, Jesus is my Savior, not my judge, and I won't be condemned. Because He is the satisfying sacrifice that pleased the Father on my behalf. That's what propitiation means. So in this, just this short time, we have John explaining this wonderful... In fact, he calls Jesus Christ the Word of Life. Everlasting life. He is life. So if life was raised from the dead as proof that my sins are gone, then I truly have joy, don't I? I write these things to you that your joy may be full. What did Jesus say? He said, I would, I, I would that my joy might be in them and that their joy might be full. This is how he starts out in this epistle. He says, and we'll get into our text here in chapter 2, verse 27. Verse 27, he says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. You do not have need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and it is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Or you abide in him. You know, if you look at this, a lot of times the Lord will use teachers, pastors, evangelists to teach the Word of God, but we know truth from error. How do we know truth from error? The Holy Spirit. I can convince or try to convince somebody all day long of the truth. But all biblical truth is spiritual truth. It is truth that is wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, God sometimes uses human teachers, but I'll tell you one thing that, that God uses him and him alone. The Spirit teaches one to abide in Christ. No matter how good of a teacher it is, and there are a lot of good ones out there, they cannot teach you to abide in Jesus Christ. They can bludgeon you to death with the Word, they can admonish you, they can encourage you, but it's the Spirit Himself that teaches us to abide in Christ. To abide in Him. That is taking, what does it mean to abide in Him? It's taking everything, our joys, our sorrows, our, our wants, our needs, uh, everything to Him. Now that's different than walking in the light. But if we're walking in the light, we're abiding in Christ. To walk in the light is to have nothing in life that would hinder our fellowship with Him. That means doing nothing in life, thinking about nothing in life that he cannot share in. Whether that's surfing the internet, whether that's watching questionable things on TV, whether that's reading questionable material, whatever it is. Engaging in questionable habits. Um, you know, it's, it's going to the store and, and buying something and realizing that the cashier had, had made a mistake and charged you $2 instead of $250 or whatever, or $20. Bucks. You know, the temptation immediately comes in. To walk in the line is going, no, because the, the Lord is, you're sharing your life with Him. And, and you, you know, it's, it's the abiding in Christ. The Spirit teaches you that, to walk in the light as He is in the light. What does light do? It exposes sin. 
I don't know if many of you have thought that about that verse, but I was, uh, I was amazed when I realized that not only in this verse we're talking about, uh, you don't need that anyone teach you concerning right and wrong, abiding and not abiding, but the Spirit himself teaches you to abide in him. That's one thing. When you, have, when you are a born-again Christian, your conscience is alive. You know. And you're miserable. When you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're miserable. I don't care what anybody says. That's not my words. That's God's word. You're miserable. You're trying to walk a life of obedience and joy when you have no obedience and joy, and your joy is ebbed because you are refusing to, to walk in the light, as he is in the light. But he says in verse 28, Now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him that is coming. Charles Ryrie had a note, uh, I don't know, I haven't looked in a long time, um, in his uh, in his study Bible. And uh, it was quite, uh, what well, was quite revolutionary in, in his study Bible at that time. I don't know of any other ones that had this, but it was plainly speaking that we want to abide in him. We want to do those that are pleasing to him. Because when he comes back, we don't want to be ashamed. You know, and that's, that's a simple form of, of humanity as well. You know, we, when, when you have something to do and your boss tells you to do something, expects you to do something, you've been flaking off and you didn't get it done, uh, your your conscience says, uh-oh, you know, and, and why didn't you get this done? You have to answer for it. And it's the same thing. We want to be abiding in Him, dwelling in the light, you know, walking in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. It tells you what walking in the light is. We have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We're not only fellowshipping with one another. That's one of the true things about also fellowship. You know, we build these eternal, these eternal relationships with each other, you know, uh, and all of a sudden somebody starts, you know, you don't see much anymore and you don't hear from much anymore. You know if they're falling off. You know, if they're living a life of, of, uh, of not walking in the light, not being obedient. But it says plainly here in, in verse 28 of chapter 2, and now little children... Again, the tender, near-born ones is what that really means. Abide in Him. That when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Again, we left off this point last, uh, last time. It's a double indicative in the language which we use every single day, and we don't realize it. If the apostle here is writing on the fact that it's possible to be ashamed at his coming, and he's monitoring us not to be ashamed at his coming, then it is possible to be ashamed at his coming. We use that double form of language in every form of speech we use every day. We don't realize it. We do that when we do it with our kids. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Because if you don't do this, do this, do this, something is going to happen. One of the reasons why the Proverbs is written. Look how many times it says, my son, listen to the instruction of a father. You know, uh, because it is imperative that if you don't listen to that instruction and walk that way, there's consequences to be paid. And one of the things when Christ is coming back, you think of the fact in John 14, when he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. 
You look at, at Paul's admonition of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, in a twinkling of an eye. And then you see his admonition in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the snatching away. Think, put all these together. Think about this. The Lord is coming back. I don't, you know, I do care about your timing. I do believe that, that before that Jesus Christ will come back for his church before the tribulation. I do hold that very highly. But there's some that might hold of a different time. And what we all can agree on is that that is a very real hope. It's called the blessed hope of the church. And as far as the scripture goes, it is called imminent. It's imminency. And, the, and it's called, it, what a, a definition of imminency is hanging directly over the head. In other words, there's nothing that has to be fulfilled until that comes back. Jesus is full of Mr. saying, watch and everything else. And so is Paul. Think about this for a minute. Can we afford to be in any other place than abiding in him in fellowship and in joy and in doing his business when he comes back? We can't afford to be doing anything else. People say, well, you're talking about works. I'm not talking about works. I'm talking about giving Jesus Christ his rightful due. He is the king. He is a lord of lords. He is, when he says go, we go. When he says jump, we say how high. He is not to be uh, trifled with. He's not to be, um, well, given any other place than his rightful due. And the reason why I looked at Luke 9.23 for a while is he said that if you don't lose your life, you're going to have a problem. Not for, I'm not talking about salvation. There's a story, and I want to I want to end this verse right here because uh, chapter 2, verse 28 is a very, very significant verse. There's a story, and I think I've told it before, and I'll, and I'll refresh your memory about this. Remember this story. It's a true story, and it wanted that explicitly documents what we've been saying here. Down in the Congo, many, many years ago, remember the story, there was a, a missionary, and they had kids, and, and uh, I think it was a four or five-year-old son was playing out in the corner of the yard, and it was very hot and very sultry that day. The father just happened to come out to call his son in for something, I don't know, supper or whatever, and realized that right above him was a 15-foot anaconda um, lurking and watching, you know. And the father, in desperation, said, you know, son, don't argue, fall to your, to your knees and come towards me. Well, unfortunately, the kid out of obedience did. He dropped his knee, went to his father, and they both stood up and watched, watched the snake recoil back in. What would happen if the child said, what? Why? I'm playing. Or why? You know, there's no room for questioning. You know, now I'm not saying that, you know, in desperation we go, Lord, I don't understand. Okay, that's different. Not understanding something is different than questioning something. Questioning can, can go in the form of disobedience. If, if you know the direct will of God, like the little boy knew the direct will of his father, don't say anything, hit the ground and come towards me. If he would have said, what, what, I'm playing, I'm really, I don't want to, I'm, you know, whatever he would have been snatched by that anaconda. And it's a perfect illustration of the obedience we are to have to the Lord Jesus Christ. To abide in him, to go about his business. 
Not be ashamed of his coming. Isn't it amazing how, how verse 29 ends that conversation by saying, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Isn't that amazing? Righteousness. The one who practices righteousness. I have a position of being righteous before the Father. But I also have an opportunity down here to allow the Spirit to work the works of righteousness in me in this life. A life of obedience. That is what's going to separate the nominal Christian from the one who has Jesus Christ as Lord in his life. You know, and we've all seen them. We've all been most of us here have been Christians for twenty plus years. We've seen that. You know, um, we've seen people that that don't really give too much of a concern about the Lord's agenda. It's their agenda that they're worried about. Behold, a manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God or born ones. I love that. Wow. born ones. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. The love of God. Jesus said an amazing thing and they opened their eyes to the love of the Father. He said in John 16, he said, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Jesus also says that if you love me, you will be loved by my Father and we will come and make our abode with you. Jesus Christ will only reign supremely in one's life that is obedient to him. That's why there's so much struggle in the Christian life. People have not made that decision that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we need to realize it's not the fact that we're saved from sin, although we are. It's the fact that now we've been separated from the world, and we've been separated to Jesus Christ as Lord. Even the demoniacs fell down and worshipped him. Wow. Behold a manner of love. Remember John 17, 23, this is something that is astounding, folks. The Father loves us just as he loves his Son. <laughs> Can you believe that? Let's look at that. I, I don't want to flip all over today, but you know what? Unless sometimes we see that, put your finger there and turn back to John 17. How many of you are reading this for the first time? This is an astounding statement. Jesus said, I do all things that please the Father. Jesus' mission here was to fulfill his Father's will, was to do everything that pleased him. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's obedience. It's joy. The more obedient we find ourselves, the more joy we have. John 17, verse 23. I can't help but get excited about these things, and I hope you do too. I and them and you and me, this is Jesus talking to his Father, that they may be perf made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, listen to this, and have loved them as you have loved me. 
That is an astounding statement. And you know where he uttered that? The Garden of Gethsemane. The discord, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, are what they call the upper room discord, that discord to his disciples. But as he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he, in other words, after uttering this, where was he going? He was going to the judgment seat, and then he was going to a cruel Roman cross. Obedience. And there was no one that had more joy than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants that joy to be in us, that our joy might be full. It's not a condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's an encouragement, an admonition to go on and on. Listen to this. Paul writes in Ephesians about the love of Christ. He says, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Get a hold of that. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. The world has been in disobedience with God from day one. He says, I've chosen you out of the world. You're, you're, you know, John 5, 24, remember our verse, from death into life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized out of the deadness into life in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. You can't, you know, you've been immersed in one and out of the other one. Don't fight and don't live that mediocre Christian life anymore if you are. Make Christ Lord and and. Do not, do not submit to anything less. Do not submit to sin. Do not submit to temptation. We left off admonishing because of the love of the Father. By sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. By raising Him from the dead. By His Senate at at the right hand of the Father. He's there in the presence of God for us. He's our intercessor. He's our protector. He's our guide. He's the answer of why we are justified. Make the decision now. Right now. And I'm to, to leave temptation where it should be, outside of your life. When temptation comes... Make the decision now, I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to bend. That's one of the things I loved about my earthly father. That boy, it chapped my hide when I was a teenager. I remember saying, I was telling Greg the other day, man, I, I remember just a few times, and maybe your sons did it too. I don't know, because you're a man. Can't you just be cool once? Can't you just, you know, because he was a man that said no more, and he said yes. Let me tell you something. As a father of seven, now of five boys, I appreciate that. He didn't bend in his principles about keeping me safe and doing things for me. How much more God? 
Don't bend. Don't give in to temptation. And we have the power now. We have the power to live a life of holiness. Will we sin? Absolutely, because we have a, a body that is housing a sinful, defeated nature. Paul says in Romans 8.23, 8, I think it is, that you know, we're longing for that redemption of the body. You know? I'm longing for the day that my body is in line with my spirit. That we're perfectly in mind and we're perfectly in practice with the will of God never to sin again. Behold the manner of love of the Father. You know? In verse 2, Behold, beloved, now we are children of God and it shall not yet be revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. You know, we can have a relationship with Him now and know the fellowship of God, but that's nothing compared to when we are actually standing before Him. Listen to some of these descriptions that I put down real quick. Two of them that I love, take love from Song of Solomon. He's called the Rose of Sharon. He's called the Lily of the Valley. He's lovely. This is a description of one that says to his bride, you and I, I find no spot in you. You are lovely in my eyes. You're like the wings of a dove to me. You are beautiful. Some of these other descriptions, his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, the holiness of our God. You know, sin is evil. Sin is, is absolutely sinful. Sin, if you talk to the youngest the youngest. Uh, child they can understand because of sin nails were driven through the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ but he's going to have a head and he's pictured of you know symbolically of white hair like wool white as snow pure nothing defiling and that's what our inheritance is his eyes are like a flame of fire he sees through the depths of the heart he knows what our afflictions are. He knows what our sorrows are. He goes right to the thoughts and tents of the heart. He's the Word of God. The feet like bronze. Bronze typifies uh, sacrifice. Um, judgment. He's not only taken the sacrifice for our sins, but He took the judgment for our sins too. He's as solid as a rock. His voice is like the sound of many waters. He is the Lamb that has been slain from the foundation of the world. I was reading one time of a, of a French artist that tried to uh, do a description, paint a description of all this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a mumble-jumble mess. You can't do it because it's symbolically of the wonderfulness of our God. Wow. Then he says in verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. <coughs> wow. To look and to gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to abide in him, to have our sins forgiven, to walk in the light as he is in the light, to cross over the threshold of obedience, never bowing again to the fact of, of temptation. And when temptation is, is, is come, we meet it with the Word of God. We meet it with the solidity of, of be abiding in Him. You know, I read uh, last, last time we were here, and it bears reading again. 
A gentleman by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, You cannot claim to be a child of God and still go on living as if you had not been born again. In other words, one of the first implications of this realization of our sonship is the realization of the absolute necessity of living a holy life. The absolute necessity. There is no other recourse. You cannot be a Christian and be indifferent to your life. You just cannot be. God will teach you that. I want to be pure. You know, when you think about it, we're holding on to something that is going to hurt us in the end, doesn't produce Christian character, doesn't produce anything but selfishness and, and you know, momentary satisfaction, but in the end it produces havoc when we hang on to something that we think is, is a benefit to us. Something that, that we always think that will beautify our life, and in the end, it's nothing. It will fade away. The more we abide in Christ, you know, our marital relationships, I am, am tired of seeing marriages that are horrible, and they're Christian marriages. That is ridiculous. There is no reason for this. None. If you both have the, the Holy Spirit, you both are born-again Christians, there is no reason why your marriage should not be getting better and better. There is no reason for it. I've seen too much of it. I have seen personally, I think Dean and I have personally encountered over the years, five people that we knew that were supposedly Christians end up in nasty divorces. Their kids are squandered everywhere. You'll be your your business life will be impeccable. I know that I would not want I would rather have one Christian work for me than twenty that are nominal, that I can trust. And we can go on down the list. To have this pure life, to walk in him, pleasing in him, and you know what the crown of that all is, is joy. You know? Is joy. The purity of life produces joy. And now he's going to go into practical implications. Look at verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Get a hold of that word. Lawlessness. Is that amazing? Lawlessness. Wow. Let no one deceive you, Paul says, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. I'm in 2 Thessalonians, just for the record here, chapter 2. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Listen to this. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all signs and lying wonders. 
lawlessness. That's what's going to happen. That's what people that are left to themselves do when they commit sin. They're lawless. That's what sin is. Sin says, I don't care if the science says 55, I'm going to go 90. Sin says, I don't care if that's my neighbor's wife, I want her for myself. Sin says, I don't care if the tax man says I owe 300 bucks, I'm going to give him 200 and, and, and quit at that. We can go on and on and on. And as Walter Martin said, can a Christian do this? Yes. He's going to live a life of ebbed joy. He's going to live a life of constantly being disciplined by the Father. He's going to live a miserable life. But if we see Christ, we abide in Him, we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, we have made that decision that when sin comes lurking at the door, we have the power now. And we have the drive and the will because I love the Father. You know why I don't want to sin? Because I love the Father. I don't want to sin because my Lord died on a cross. He suffered separation for that very sin my flesh wants to do. That is amazing. That puts lawlessness in proper perspective. The perspective the Word puts it in. As time goes on, we are going to see the, the remnant, the body of Christ, who is abiding in Him, shining so much brighter, and the rest of the professing church is out here, and they're catching every wave of doctrine, they're doing all these things, and they have a different idea of success. The Bible says success is from within. The Bible says that success is a prospering of the soul to walking in joyous, rapturous joyous, joyousness with the Lord in obedience. The world says success is numbers and, and money and, and all these other things that are fleeting. Whoever commits sin, again, commits lawlessness. Wow. This is the gateway, by the way, verse 4, and the way he's going to talk about the rest of chapter 3 and into verse 4, or chapter 4. Sin. What separates the, the child of God versus the child outside of Christ? Sin. They throw them to it. They're continuing in it. The absolute absorbing into it. You realize that if you look back to before you were a Christian, if God has given you uh, that much clarity, I know he has me, maybe it's just me. Man, I was enthralled in sin. I was enthralled in it. Was I a bad guy? The world standards, no. But I was into myself. I was selfish. Uh, I could go on. Sin was the course of life. It was lawless. That's a stinging verse. And if most of your Bible is verse 4, will either, either, be high, either be darkened or there's some type of marks around it to, to tell you that he's breaking into a very important understanding what it means to be pure. And that's to understand that sin is lawlessness. Look at verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Wow. And you know. First John is a book of is an epistle of knowing. I think the word is. You know, I can say, for example, when we get down to the end of this, one of my favorite verses in this epistle is John 5.13. These things we have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and so forth. So you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Let's look at that verse for a little while. He was manifested. 
Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, where he made him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. He was that propitiatory sacrifice. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right of the Hebrews in Hebrews 9 says, But now at the end of the ages he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what you entertain in your disobedience and your rebelliousness, a little sin here, a little sin there, you are doing what Christ suffered on a cross to take away. We're not talking about penalty here. We're talking about acts. We're talking about doing. We're talking about what a righteous life in Christ produces versus one who is a mere professor and or without Christ. Or as John would say, the son of the devil. What separates them two? If you know a Christian, you've known him for years, and you can't see any difference, something's wrong. Doesn't that, to the natural mind, say something is wrong here? If I get a brand new roof on my house and my roof still leaks, something's wrong. I mean, that's the way that we live life. I remember, I remember one time we, Dean and I were working really, really hard to get these contracts for uh, this business we were in years ago. Really hard. We finally got And all the people would, you know, were going to benefit from all the, you know, the, the people that we had under us and whatever. And we all did. We got a cut of the share. But, you know, we got home and looked at our paycheck and we thought, wait a minute, something's wrong. The more we made, the more taxes earned up. Even in that thing, you think, something's wrong. I'm working hard. I should reap more benefits from it. So when we see somebody professes to be a Christian, yet it's a womanizer or what what have you, something's wrong. Because they don't have to live that way. At all. And in him is no sin. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 7, 1 Peter 1, 19. Listen to these two verses. For such a high priest is fitting for us, who is holy harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. Separate from sinners. We are in Him. We are separate from that lifestyle. We are separate from the tyranny of sin. We are separate from the enthrallment of sin. We are separate from the driving force of sin. We have died to the law and now grace fulfills our life. Law can only condemn You know, law can only bring out your sinful nature. Hey, that bench is beautiful. It was just painted. Do not touch wet paint. We're dead to that now. We have a higher form of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, and then we don't have to be enthralled to that anymore. We've been saved, Peter said, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Simply put, as we abide in Him from moment to moment and day by day, we find victory over sin and live righteously. Victory over sin. That's what we want. I think some of us have to readjust the way that we think about about the way we live. You know, let me, let me just share a verse that, that uh, I think is phenomenal. 
In his first, Second Corinthians thirteen five, Paul says to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Now, now, if he stopped there, that would be one thing. But he continues on, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified? Don't you realize that Christ is in you? Examine yourself. So what he's saying is, examine yourself. The true Christian is Christ living in him. It's not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Here we get into some really tough verses. Look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin, or should in the continuous sense, does not continue to sin. Whoever sins or continues to sin has neither seen him or known him. Whoa, here we go. Remember before in this conversation I started to say a lot of people don't follow Christ because they realize what it takes. Jesus in John 6 said, I'll tell you what it takes. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no part in me. And many didn't walk with Him anymore. They're saying, whoa, wait a minute. We didn't sign up for this. You mean i got to give my whole life to this one by very nature? Yes, because He gave His whole life for you. But I love what, what, what Peter responds to when he turned to the twelve. He says, you're going to go away also? What did Peter say? Lord, you are the one that has words of eternal life. Life. What is life? Life for the Christian is abiding in Christ, walking in Him, meticulously guarding His life by the power of the Spirit that will be my please, the one that's enlisted us as a soldier, Paul would say to Timothy. By the way, he was talking to Timothy as a pastor, or as a young overseer of, of, a, of a bunch of tumultuous people. You want to please the one that listed you as a soldier. Because there's going to be ones that want to be in that army, but they want to be lawless. They want to do what they want to do. And that it doesn't truly bring glory to our Lord. If you want to bring glory to God in your life, be obedient to Him. If you have a questionable thought life, get rid of it. And you'll experience a joy and intimacy you never knew. Try it. Believe me, I've been there. Again, I think one of the hard things of coming to Christ at 22 years old as a young man is by the time you're young and you're tender and you're strong and you've got so much pride that's oozing out of your body. I can do it my way. That's a hard thing to get rid of. And that's why I love the older saints that have, that have been in the Lord a long time, that have something that they can teach and something they can show. That, oh, I was like you at one time. I had pride, and I wanted my cake, and I wanted to eat it too. I wanted to be a Christian and go to heaven, but yet there's life to live my way. And by the way, you know, I've been forgiven of sin, so it's like the old banner saying that a young man comes to Christ, and he likes to drink, and he can't quite kick the habit, so he has a big cardboard Jesus in front of his bottle behind him, because Jesus is going to protect him, right? It's called taking the grace of God in vain. Whoever abides, verse 6, again, in him does not continue to sin. 
Simply put, folks, whosoever continually abides in him will not habitually sin. It's like the, it's like the additive, if you're trusting, you're not worrying. If you're worrying, you're not trusting. Whoever continually abides in him will not habitually sin. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15, verses 4 and 5. This is amazing stuff. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot... You know, these, by the way, these verses are so familiar to us. I mean, those have been Christians for a long time. I've read this over and over and over again. But when you take in context of what really being a Christian is about, Jesus Christ is saying, listen, I am the Lord God. I am it. I am the Savior from sin. I am the author of life. You know? I redeemed you unto myself so that the Father may be glorified. But again, listen to John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can't do nothing. You mean I can't bring fruit? I can't do anything on my own? No! You can't do anything that lasts because Jesus said he wants fruit that remains that the Father would be glorified. Wow. And simply abiding means, again, nothing is allowed in life which separates us from him. Nothing. Nothing is allowed in life that separates us from him, period. Uh, Old, new, I don't care what it is. Uh, Nothing. A life of disobedience is a life of frustration. It's a defeating life. I would not want to look back in my life and say, well, I'm a Christian by the grace of God. My sins are forgiven. I lived a defeated life. A life that was mediocre when I could have, I could have been out there saving souls. You know, people realize that, uh, Somebody that talks about the gospel and preaches the gospel is one thing, but we're to live the gospel, that we win people by by our own lives. You know, that's that's one of the number one things that people uh, liked about Buddhism. You know, because because the the philosophy behind Buddhism was was that, that nothing controls you, not pleasure, not anger, on anything, you're just kind of in that, you know, where nothing controls you. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? I, I, I don't want to be angry. I don't want that to control me. I don't want to, I don't want to have anything. I don't want passion, lust control me. I don't want anything to control me. Isn't that great? Boy, that's a great philosophy, isn't it? It is impossible without Christ. And by the way, passions aren't bad. You know. Loving is not bad. Excitement is not bad. Emotion is not bad. Those things are given by God, but they're directed by God. And God should be able to enter in. I can tell you one thing. The only reason why my marriage is the way it is, is because Christ is the head of it. Period. End of discussion. I, I want to be a great guy. I want to do everything. I want to, you know, but you know what? I can't do it. But I know that I have success in my marriage because Christ is the head of it. 
And I know that when I was in business, I was successful in business because Christ was the head of it. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Wow. Again, abiding, nothing allowed in life that separates us from him. Nothing in life cannot that cannot be shared with him needs to be jettisoned. Get that. It needs to be jettisoned. If I can't bring Christ into my reading, get rid of the material. If I can't bring Christ into my TV shows, get rid of the TV shows. If I can't bring Christ, here's, here's something that's going to really knock people down, and I hope it does. If I can't bring Christ into my thought life, get rid of it. Because after all, the mind is spiritual. Not The mind is not the brain. You can't go around saying, I wonder what my brain can do today. The mind, the thoughts are spiritual. Christ can, can control that. That's why I think the correct, more correct rendering on the verse, it says, we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Nothing. Get rid of it all. You want to abide in Christ and have joy unending and no intimacy? Whatever separates you from him, jettison it out. You have the power. To do it by the Holy Spirit. I love that. God does not leave us down here as orphans. I will come to you. He says, as I live, you'll live also. Can you imagine that? He's not going to leave us down there as as, uh, ones that just flounder around trying to find our way. Doing the best we can. Absolutely not. In verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Listen, sin is deceptive. Sin is of the devil. Jesus said, your father, the devil, he sinned from the beginning. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Let no one deceive you about that. I don't care about what people say. I really don't care about what they look at. I want to see their life. I want to see how they treat their wife. I want to see how they do their business affairs. I want to see how they expound the word. I want to see what they do at home. That's a big one. If what you do at home can't be brought out in the light, there's something wrong. But he's saying, let no one deceive you. There's a lot of people out there that want to deceive, you know, Deceiving, saying, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm in. I'm, a, I'm a righteous man. Listen to me, and you'll do fine, or whatever." But they're, I won't mention names. But Dean and I, when we first moved here, we were seeking a fellowship, and we had talked to many, many different pastors, and and we went to one for a long time, and, and had, we're not a long time. Actually, it was a fairly short time, three or four months, and teaching was pretty good, and and. Uh, but then, as was my custom, as I, I wanted to spend time with, with those that I would, would sit with or sit under, especially for my wife and my kids' sake, and we quickly found out that the life did not match uh, the teaching. There's a lot of people out there, beware of that. That's why he says, don't let anybody deceive you. A righteous life is the result only because of salvation through Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 14, I love this verse, verse 2 says, 
He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. That's the way it is. You know? That's just the way it is in life. Look at verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. Now sins is the, is the continual enthrallment to it, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. There you go, folks. Destroy it. And that means pride. I've known Christians that have supposedly been Christians for years that still are so full of pride, they go and live in their own life. And if they can squeeze God in on Sunday or whatever, they can, they'll do it. And things that should be a joy to them, they're called privilege or they're called duties, you know, whether it's going to fellowship or whatever, you know. And no one's here condemning. But we're just bringing to light some of the things that the scripture says. Pride is very destructive. Before pride comes a fall, pride is an abomination. Do you know that? Pride's an abomination to God. He gives grace to the humble, he'll abase the proud. I don't want God to humiliate me. What did Paul say when he came back to the church of Corinth? Shall I come with a rod? You know? <laughs> shall, shall my God, uh, you know, cause embarrassment for you? Am I going to come with a rod or am I going to come with love? Are you going to be abased before him or am I going to come in love and admonition? See, people don't like to hear this. But it's the word of God. You know? And it's because God loves you. It's not to put a, a leash on you. You know, we see that very uh, pointedly in Paul's uh, description of marriage, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says that all that have wives should live as though they had done. For the day that is coming is short, that's stressing and everything else. And he goes on a few verses down, he says, I don't say this to put a leash on you or restrain upon you. But that you may devote yourselves with undevoted, or just full of attraction and unhindered devotion to the Lord. We go on and on. Because God loves you that much. And believe me, if you get rid of your pride and your sin and everything else, your life will be rapturously involved in joy. And you will know an intimacy with God that people that want to hang on to their own stubborn ways will never find, ever. This is verse 9, line of this verse. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Let me read the, let me read the whole context here. First time I read the King James Version, and that's I'm like, what? And a lot of people are still hung on that. That's not what it means here. You must take it in context, and you must understand what, what the context is speaking about, the enthralling, the continuing, the lifestyle. Because if you don't take it in that way, if you don't take it in context, this is a great example of when you don't take the context in the Bible as it is, a literal context, you're going to have problems with the first chapter of John. Wait a minute. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just forgive us our sins. Wait a minute. Now we're saying if we're in Christ, you cannot sin. That's not what the text is talking about here. So if you have a new American standard, you have the more, more electric, more uh, 
probably greater understanding of this verse. The literal rendering of verse 9 is, No one who is born of God practices sin, because the seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. When Jesus in John chapter 8 said to the the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's not saying go and be sinless because he's, he's putting a burden on her that she couldn't bear. And he said in Matthew 11 that my burden is light. My yoke is easy. What he's saying is, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. In me, you don't have to go on and give your life to a degrading lifestyle, which any sin degrades your life. Any kind of sin is degrading to who God wants you to be. And when we get to heaven, and sin is no no longer even a present threat, I think that's when a lot of, of us will realize what a tyranny it is. What a tyranny it is. Whether it's anger, and a lot of people don't view Anger is a sin. That is righteous anger when Jesus went in the temple. We're not talking about that. Whoever has been born of God, verse 9, does not continue to sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin or keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Do you know how many times that Paul in his epistles talks about being in Christ, in Christ. You know, there's a difference between those that profess to be Christians and those that that have Christ that are born from above. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, Concerning the coming of the Lord, this is First Thessalonians, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, lest you sorrow as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with, with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we are alive and remain, and shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This shall always be the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about those in Christ and those in Adam. Those in Christ will go on to a, a, a glorious resurrection to life. And those... Uh, in Adam will go to perdition and they will be resurrected but a resurrection to damnation you know like we see for example the false prophet and and, uh, in the Antichrist or or in you know thrown in the lake of fire a thousand years after the millennium passes where Satan's thrown in the lake of fire the Bible says the false prophet and the Antichrist are still there in other words not consumed there's going to be a resurrection but, but ours is glorious in Christ it is, it is diametrically opposed to the Bible itself to be in Christ and yet lead a life of um, even the slightest bit of debauchery. Are we going to sin? Yes. But, what, but that's the beauty of it. 
Schofield has a wonderful illustration of this, the best I've ever seen. And those of you who have read the Schofield Bible know this, and, and uh, it is just absolutely wonderful. It has clarified millions of understanding of this. He's describing a man who's been born again that as he goes to the Oriental bathhouse, and says he takes a bath, he's cleansed from all unrighteousness, and yet when he's walking back to the house, his feet will acquire defilement, and this washes feet. But he himself is clean from all that the law could say or accuse him. And it's beautiful, because that's what we are. And when we have defilement, we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wise and just, because he took the condemnation himself. He fulfilled every bit of the law for you and I. And he also took the condemnation and the judgment for the breaking of that law for you and I. So he's just. Listen to these words. If we confess our sins, our defilement, he is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Keep on sinning. Wow. We can't because we've been born of God. Nor do you need to. You know? That's what separates biblical Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And I only say religion as far as Christianity is just by means of comparison. By no means does the Bible talk favorably about religion. Religion is always the outward show. We as baptism and one baptized in the body, we show the world what has already happened and taken place on the inside. That's the meaning of baptism. So when you go baptize in the river wherever you get, you show the world. When I was baptized in Corleone Bay in North Lake Tahoe, I was signifying to the world and to my parents, something has happened to me. I believe this gospel. I believe this word of God. My sins have been, I've been forgiven. That Jesus Christ is now my Lord. I'm not my Lord anymore. I walked to a different drumbeat, and that's to him. And I've never looked back. And I'm thankful I haven't. Because Paul says that, you know, you can run a race. And if you run it in such a way, there's a, there's a reward. There's a crown waiting for you. And I want that crown. And I want that reward. I want to see my Lord. I'm expecting to see him. I want to see him. I can't wait to see him. Because I know that when I see him, I will be with him forever. I just want to end these verses probably for my own sake. Because right now, folks, I think that is a time for comfort. I think that, you know, you can read these verses and you can look at sin so much, you can tend to get, uh, feel like you've getting pummeled with things. And it's not the fact that we pummel because somebody's life might not be as righteous as mine. But we admonish these things so that we might see that the Lord desires that we have nothing in the way of Him. You know? We even say it in our wedding vows. You forsake all others. You know, I remember talking, you know, we did Jen and Joe's wedding. You know, you, are you willing to forsake all others? Okay. What does that mean? Well, there's not too many. There's, there are people out there, but there, most people don't actually commit the physical adultery maybe on their wife, but they sure do in so many other ways. And if that's true in the physical realm of of relationships down here, it's more it's more uh, abundant with our Christian life. There are so many things, the devil and everything is clamoring for our attention. 
The flesh wears its ugly head when you don't think it will. The moment you think you've got everything under control, here it comes. Look out. The moment you think you've been having a pretty good day, man, and you've talked to a couple people about Christ, one might have given his life for Christ, and you're relishing in the, in the glow of it, watch out. You know, let's make up our mind now. So when it comes, you're dealing with it. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. That's, that's my wife and I's verse out of uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. But listen to this. I'll leave you with the, with the first six verses of, of the discourse in John 14. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms, or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. He's going and preparing a place for you, for me, individually. You know, as a corporate part of his body, he loves you. He's going to tailor this for you. I believe this with all my heart. Because my God's like that. He loves us individually. He's tailoring a place for you, exactly what you want. You know, people down here, they want to find the perfect house. And, you know, I mean, we've been selling our house for almost a year now. I know. I mean, for all kinds of things. Oh, you know, it's great, but we want this. Oh, it's great. He is tailoring something, I believe, with all my heart, that is going to just dazzle us for eternity. I can't wait to see that. He loves you. And, and we flirt with sin? In my Father's house, are, again, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you with him. And we're going we're gonna to forsake that in sin? We're going to forsake that and, and entertain uh, pride and, and, and everything else? Is it tough? Hey, did anybody say the Christian life was going to be easy? Paul says, I die daily. So he's going to go prepare this fantastic place. You know, I don't have to worry about, well, hey, you know, is it going to be something I want? It will be exactly what I was designed to love and to dwell in, because that's who God is. And if I go and prepare a place for you again, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know, and where I, I go, you know, the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus takes it from the material to the spiritual. Life. Life is not this. Life is Him. We don't know where you're going to go. Leave us a map or something. You know, let us know. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Wow.
Lord, um, the Lord has shown me the last, well, when I really understood where we're going, and the time is short for, for us here, but I love you guys, and that's my heart. That's the heart of the Lord, and I, I, I would be, you know, I used to tell my sons, if you don't tell somebody the truth, you're not really being a truthful friend to them. And there's so much more to this life than just what meets the eye. You know, they say that those that are suffer great loss, suffer problems in their life. I mean, uh, we've all had tragedy, death, uh, whatever. That those who, who, who stick to the Lord and allow Him to take them through them find an intimacy with Him that most people don't. But we also understand the Bible talks about those that give up their life, that give up what they, they don't need, and they grab what they cannot afford to lose. There's an intimacy and a joy there that the Bible talks about that few nowadays know about. Few as far as the masses go. And that's what we want. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the word. And Lord, but I, I thank you for the Lord of the word. It so eloquently points to who you are and your character. Father, I pray that if there are those listening that have not surrendered everything, intellect, pride, um, whatever to you, that they would do it. Because it, nobody needs to be taught. It's the Spirit that teaches us to abide in Christ. I pray that would be their lot, because what is it worth if man gains a whole world and that you know, loses? What is a game? If we have 20 more days left and we, we live it half-heartedly, I pray that we would, we, would, we would consider and accept nothing less than excellency. Nothing less than the Word of God operating in our life. Again, I thank you for this day, and I pray that you would go with us as we go, and give us joy that our joy might be full. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.